Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Keely McCavitt and Robin Mullins. Nick Bridges is not with us again today, but we have a substitute and that's my son. And he's basically the same. You'll probably hear him. (laughs) There's a baby and he is a (laughs) co-host. Whether it is their history or architecture that captivates you, or whether you've encountered them in person or on pages, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who is not intrigued by castles. And someone who is particularly interested in these magnificent structures is Allie Norton. Hailing from North Carolina, Allie's passion for castles took her across the pond where she is currently a PhD student studying at the University of Exeter. Welcome, Allie. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a bit more about what it is exactly that you study? Because castles is a pretty, seems like a pretty big subject. Yeah. Um, So for castles, what I do is look at rural um, earth and timber ones that have been forgotten or plowed over. Basically, they're, they're just a pile of dirt now. And I look at the local history of how when the Normans came, they built it and they had to shape whatever identity that village, manor, estate took on. Um, And I use GIS to pretty much look at the views of what those castles would have seen, take away all of the man-made features like uh, buildings, roads, trains, which have whatever. And I say, okay, why did they build right here? What was the purpose behind it? What identity did they want to portray? And if there was already something there from the Anglo-Saxons, did they want to keep it? Did they want to manipulate it? And I haven't figured out that answer yet, but that's what I do. Nice. Awesome. And for those who aren't familiar, can you uh, just explain GIS? So GIS is Geographic Information Systems, and it was developed specifically for geographers and data scientists. So they developed it for zoning to figure out uh, perhaps where a street light could have gone to have a, little, a lot more visibility for drivers or whatever. And academics took it in the 1980s and decided we really like these software systems that um, perhaps the data scientists are using. And academics in the archaeology world, uh, geography world, just look at it to say, what did past sites or monuments see? What was the spatial relationship between them? and figure out what patterns might be there. Historians haven't really looked at GIS, so I am kind of in the beginning of that stage. Uh, We tend to like our archives and nothing technological. Um, So it's a bit different to figure out how to use GIS when it comes to history. That's right, and at No History, we actually have a few specialists in GIS mapping, and that's a service that we provide to help um, with our research and with different reports and other projects that we're given or contracts that we are awarded. So something that we are also familiar with. So it's neat to see that you're able to use it for your research as well. Yeah, and it seems kind of like almost the closest thing that we have to a time machine, really. Like when you can have that kind of spatial visualization to kind of like put yourself in the place at the time. Maybe that's romanticizing it a bit, but I like that idea. (laughs) 
No, I think that's pretty accurate. We don't know 100% what they would have encountered or seen, but GIS does give us a pretty more than likely not scenario, which we would never have had had we not taken it from the data scientists in the 1980s. Mm. The 1980s, good for more than just bad hair cuts. <laughs> and great music. <laughs> yeah, and lots of hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned when you were describing your research, thinking about whether or not things were like spolia from previous um, settlements and places were intentionally kept. Is that a very large part of your research? So it's case by case. It depends on Doomsday Book and what was there, what evidence I have in the archives. Um, if there was something there for most of the castles that I look at, then that will be a huge part. At the moment, I just don't know. Mm. And that's one of the things that's intriguing you and like pulling you forward. Exactly. Nice. So I think, I mean, I've at least visited lots of castles. I love castles. And I think it's really awesome that you get to actually research them. Although I'm more of a fan of the like brick or stone castle than uh, one that's made out of, uh, I believe you said, like wood and earth. Uh, you know, it would, nothing against those, but they aren't, you know, really around as much as you mentioned. So what exactly defines a castle? Like what is and isn't a castle? For England, a castle is a structure that has a militaristic, administrative, and residential capacity. Uh, however, there is a time frame where they need to be built. You do get in the 1066 period a lot of the ones in the countryside to be built with earth and timber because that was what was around. It was really quick to assemble them and build them, whereas opposed to mining stone and adding it. it took a lot more time and a lot more money, so you don't see those as much unless it was a royal castle. The time frame that, in my opinion, defines what a castle is, it's about 1066 to the mid to late 1200s, about the 1272 area with Henry III. Anything later than that, we're going straight into manor homes where it is purely just a residential function. They want something there. They want it to be really pretty. They want a lot of gardens and anything for the royals. We get more palaces, such mm. as Windsor. Uh, or Buckingham, for example. <laughs> Buckingham is the 1800s. Way, way late. But it's also Buckingham Palace. It's in the title. I, yeah, if we're going to... Really split hairs on that one. 1272-1830s. <laughs> yeah, practically similar. It's all the same, right? <laughs> Only a few years difference, really. I'm just really jazzed because I've, ne I've only ever been to one castle, and it was Warwick Castle in the UK. I've also been there. And it's like it's like Disneyland. Ali gave us like the, the most horrified right? look That's what I was world. kind of expecting. So tell us what's wrong with Warwick Castle. Other than the fact Break that it it's down. like... You get to see a guy with a hawk. <laughs> it's the coolest thing. <laughs> Doesn't even know where to begin. <laughs> you stumped him with guy with a hawk. Can anyone follow that? Have you ever been to the Renaissance Fair? Yes. Okay, that's Warwick mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah, so <laughs> cheesy. It's so, so touristy. <laughs> There's nothing historical about it. It's just, and I'm, Sure, I'll offend someone who really loves Warwick or who's from there. 
at the moment, I don't care. <laughs> it's really cheesy. I don't like it. I'd rather... It's a medieval Disneyland. Fair enough. Yeah. So I've visited a whole bunch of castles in Wales, um, which, you know, their whole purpose was to be on the lookout across the water. They are now very far from the water. But, you know, at the time, I understand that they were a lot closer. Would those fall into your category of castles? Or some of them? Perhaps not Conway, but maybe Harlech or some of the other smaller ones? Wales and Ireland and Scotland all have their own characteristics and their own set of rules of what defines a castle. Uh, I actually had a really nice talk with a Welshman a couple months ago, and when I found when he found out that I studied castles, his look just turned into one of disgust as, oh, that's just another thing the English gave us. So, no and yes, you can say that they're castles, but at the same time they do follow certain criteria that the English ones don't. Um, and you're really just going into a whole other can of worms when you talk about Wales and Scotland, and even the borders and the marshes. So what role does archaeology play in your research? Because it's earth and timber, as Robin had said, there's nothing there anymore. You don't see it. It doesn't withstand time like brick or stone does. And archaeology allows us to dig and find any of those organic components to see if there were actually timber structures on top of this mott, uh, which is just a giant hill. On the other side, they also use this technology called LIDAR, which is laser penetrating the ground and completely going through the trees, analyzing surface elevation and topography. So I do get to see a lot of features of the landscape that would otherwise be hidden by trees or perhaps isn't picked up as well as eyesight would be. Um, One example that I can give is field systems. I can see where fields of the medieval period still exist, haven't been plowed down, whereas if I went there, it would be very difficult to pick it up sometimes. That's really fascinating that that exists. I mean, we've seen, you know, different types of um, sonar and everything being used for underwater purposes, but I'm a lot less familiar with it being used in, like, the ground. Because you don't usually think that that's something that we can pick up on, but Mm -hmm. that's great that that exists. I'm sure it makes it a lot easier for you to do this type of work. So much easier. (laughs) So I don't know if you ever played, like, computer games, any of you? Or if I'm the only nerd in the room, which is fine. Normally Nick would be with me, or either of the Nicks, really. Um, But there's this wonderful computer game from many moons ago called Age of Empires. And in that one, you have to, like, go through the different ages. And there's a whole... There's an age before you get to, like, the Stone Age. You actually do the earth and timber castles. And that's what you, like, upgrade to for your armies and everything. And so every time that you talk about earth and timber castles, all I'm picturing is like my screen where I'm like trying to race past (laughs) that age to get to the stone age so that I have like the good castle. Um, But I think that's really interesting that that's what you're studying. Oh no, I'm very familiar with Age of Empire. It's great, right? very familiar with it. I still play it. (laughs) I had to stop just because I was realizing I haven't seen daylight in days. I should probably get off this computer. Well, uh, it's on my computer right now. So, I mean, we we could just leave this behind and go play that. Just a podcast of us playing Age of Empire. Yes, it would have all yeah. those, like, fun sounds in the background of, like, the shh when those, like, 
when you can like you know harvest your little field and everything it's great it's a it's a great game i highly recommend to anyone you can get it on steam we're gonna do a side podcast and it'll just be the sounds of age of empire yes done sold (laughs) and my husband will be all in on that perfect we'll have a local area network party a land party it'll be great amazing yes so good so kind of going off of that um talking about like almost like a different um almost like a hierarchy maybe like a a social hierarchy if that's the right term of castles right because when most people think of castles i think myself included the first thing that comes to mind is like the spires and the forti- like the fortified walls and the drawbridge and everything like that so what specifically drew you to a different kind of castle or to maybe like a less popular kind of castle if that makes any sense so when i first got into castles i was the stereotypical american that comes to england goes straight to london sees the tower and just swoons uh and it wasn't really hard to figure out i was the tourist that then developed into i wanted to know pretty much where else i could go travel where are the other castles and the more i saw the stone and timber uh, the more i saw the stone it was right i know this was here surely there had to been more uh and when i got my masters it was my my supervisor that said well why don't you go study these and when i went to them it was a mound of dirt and i thought surely not where am i at i mean (laughs) buses trains the middle of nowhere uh and he went with me and he said right so we have this mound as you can see let's unpick it we have all of these villages around it we obviously can get to it quite easily but let's start figuring out perhaps what was here when this was constructed and it was from there that i was hooked and i wanted to know more and more and more and um with the stone and timber and going back a little bit more with the earth and timber there was a reason why they built it they no one in their right mind just stops walking and says right i want a castle build it here i don't care what it looks like no one so when you have that idea it might be quite obvious to you but it's been lost it's no longer there uh, the villages might grow they might be deserted sometimes they're forgotten completely until someone like me just happens to see it in a book and go and visit which I thought was really sad so I just wanted to know more and more and more about these forgotten villages these forgotten towns these forgotten castles and sort of bring it to life a bit more and it sounds like intention is a really important part of looking for those things like trying to figure out like you said like someone built this for a reason what was the reason and if they can't really if there isn't really a record of them explaining why or some sort of description why trying to find that is that kind of yeah uh, that's part of the process thankfully someone in the once again 1980s great decade (laughs) Truly a great decade. I mean, the greatest people were born in it. Um, Whatever, Robin. I, just think <laughs> I with the 90s <laughs> as the great birthing decade. Yeah. That's, that's as, as we all call it. <laughs> <laughs> when I refer to the 90s, it's always birthing that comes to mind. <laughs> but yeah, in the 1980s, this historian, this archaeologist, uh, Cathcart King, 
went out and hit every single possible castle, known castle, and made this insane uh, series of books. And anyone who gets into castles always goes to it. They're all, it's always referenced. And he lists them by county. He lists them by country. What perhaps was there but is no longer there. It's a really great starting point. And my jumping off point for the PhD was to go and find a region that I really liked and just see perhaps what hadn't been mentioned too, too often. Are you able to tell us about how you picked the region? Or yes. which region even, maybe? Hmm? I chose the Southwest Peninsula, okay. which is Devon, Cornwall, and Somerset. Oh, Somerset is so beautiful. It's gorgeous. I love it. The cider's not bad either. Ooh, <laughs> a reason to go back. <laughs> The castles brought me there. The cider made me stay. (laughs) (laughs) I was 12 when I was there last, so that wasn't really an option. (laughs) But I will go back. (laughs) So why specifically British castles or structures that meet the criteria of a British castle? Why not old timber and stone or just timber and dirt structures in different parts of the world? Or closer to home, even. Mm. So for the closer to home... Part of that question, the U.S. has none. I don't care what anyone No says. castles? What? <laughs> Color me surprised when I found out, but they have none. We're just, our history's there, but I, it's really not. Um, but for the, the architectural component, of course, the U.S. has tons where I could p- have picked one and stayed closer to home. There's just something about England, though. It's it's different yet familiar at the same time. Uh, I went there when I was at a very young age, and I just fell in love with it. So I wanted to go back more and more and more. And every time I came back to the States, it did feel like home, but there was a part that was just missing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go and live there, perhaps study there. And it just so happens that I was able to do both. And for the British part of it, So there's always a stigma around British, specifically English, architecture where everyone associated it with this lordly being, this royal inhabitant. And I don't don't think it's that way. I think the architecture that was shaped in the medieval period was done by the aristocrats, but perhaps there was a way that they wanted other peasants or laity to really be connected to it and nowadays when you go to these villages and you go outside of london or the really big cities everyone has their own story connected to to castles it might be um something as ed sheeran's song castle on the hill it was just a way that he hung out he had a really great memory with it but then you can go into the really old villages where everyone knows everyone um as a common phrase that I've heard in Exeter, the village could be God's waiting room. Just the age of the people there significantly higher than perhaps the studenty one. But they all have a different connection to this castle. So I think we should be able to move past associating these stones, the palace-like structures, and saying, well, when they were built, it might have been for a different reason, and we should explore that reason. 
Whereas if you went to Italy or Germany or France even, they've mm. already been explored. There's still more room to study, but for the most part, everyone has a general idea that there was something different. Or nowadays it's a symbol of this of this town, this, this really small village in the mountains somewhere. Mm. England hasn't quite caught up to that. Interesting. This is the idea of a castle as the center of a locality as opposed to, like you said, just like a home for someone who has a lot of money, like the boss. It's also just like a metropolitan center, maybe not metropolitan, but a community center in a way because it's a touching point for all the people who would have lived there and in some cases um, still live there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about like connection and community, right? Which is I mean, that's what history is about anyways, and mm-hmm. something that we've talked a lot about in our recent um, different interview series, uh, just looking at how history intersects with the way that we interact with one another and the way that we interact with things around us. So it's interesting that castles kind of had that same, or could have had that same type of existence and that same you know, purpose for people. They, mm-hmm. were his- they are history and they were yeah. history. <laughs> Continues to be history. <laughs> Let's, I, this is kind of like, I don't know if we'll actually include this, but have you ever seen the movie Hot Fuzz? Yes. So, so good. First of all, it's an amazing movie. Second of all, that, um, <laughs> I've only been to the UK once and I did some really tours. I went to Warwick, as I mentioned earlier, went to Stratford, had a great time, but I didn't really get the really small town kind of experience that I had dreamt of from Hot Fuzz where they have a castle and then they have the old church and... Things like that. So when you're talking about... And they're slowly murdering people. And slowly murdering people, but don't spoil the movie, Rob. <laughs> it's what? been out for a really long time. I if know. you haven't seen the movie, that's on you. That's on you. But you should still see it. It's on Netflix in Canada. It's so good. <laughs> I saw it. It was re-recommended <laughs> to me today. It's the best. <laughs> but um, all this to say, I'm. it just made me think when you were talking about, um, you know... Exeter or other places where everyone has a story about a castle, like the idea that a castle, albeit not like the timber and stone or the um, timber and dirt ones that you're specifically studying, the idea of a castle as being a cult, like a cultural and a societal kind of like touchstone that you just like grow up around. And mm-hmm. I don't know that's what that's making me think of, but I think maybe that's unfair because I'm taking it away from the, the timber castles and back into the stereotypical castle. <laughs> Yeah, for the for the earth and timber ones that are no longer there, um, everyone just kind of has a blasé attitude towards it until you actually go and and they see you there, and then all of a sudden their face lights up and they have nothing but stories to tell you. But if you just said, for example, I went to Salcombe a couple months ago, which is this coastal village in Devon, and they have this structure called a castle, but I think of it as a fort because it was built to be a fort by Henry VIII, much farther away from 1272. Just a few years. A couple if we're counting. (laughs) But I couldn't find it. There was no signs for it at all. And I walked all around that village, still couldn't find it. And I finally asked a local and I said, I'm sorry, do you know where this castle is? And he had the look of just deer in the headlights. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no castle here. And I said, well, no, but there is. I study them. 
I know that there is one here. And he said, oh, do you mean that pile of rocks by the sea? And I said, sure, why not? You want to take me there? You want to tell me how to get there? He showed me. And the moment he saw it, stories just poured out of his mouth. I heard all about what the locals were talking about for it, of saying, oh yeah, we bring our kids down here and we spend the day climbing on the rocks and swimming in the sea, and it's just kind of there. But had no one asked him, out of sight, out of mind. And it's not until, you know, someone like me goes and says, do you know where this is or can you help me find this? That they're more than willing to play tour guide. Some of the information is not historically correct, but we won't hold that against them. It sounds like it would almost be worth as a follow-up to that type of, um, it sounded like kind of like the encyclopedia of castles that you referenced, um, that someone should go around and just like take down all the oral histories mm-hmm. for all the locals, for all of those castles as like a nice compendium. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's it's true, right, that whether or not people recognize that the history of these places, they still have a connection to it. They still have some kind of interaction with it. it. It is important. Whether or not it's even historically accurate what they think about those things, that in itself is still really useful to see how people connect and what they what they associate with things and how memories are formed and changed and drift over time. Um, I think that that's really fascinating. And I mean, I would love to look at those types of things as well as, you know, understanding the the purpose of the castle originally when it was there, I think it's so interesting to see how people interact with it in the present as well and how that history has changed and how it is reflected in the community at present and how it will continue to be handed down, right? Like it's, if it's been handed down for that long, even if it's that they've forgotten that it's a castle and they just think that it's like a weird pile of ground over, over yonder, (laughs) (laughs) but that's still something worth studying, right? Like it's, it's so fascinating. There's just so much there. And to think that it's something that they don't even consider or don't even realize that they have this connection with a place until you're bringing it up and reminding them of it or or awakening it within them. I think that's a really important thing that you're doing. Another thing that's really cool is every time that someone thinks of it or every time a castle is in someone's forefront memory, it has a new life, especially some of the ones that were used in World War I when you go like Dover. If you went to visit it, rarely do they talk about the medieval or the early modern history it had. It's a World War II site, and they show the bunkers and and everything associated with that. But when you talk about the rural side of things, there's nothing that they were using it for. But it was something as I took my kids there, we had picnics on the mott. We had a really lovely day out. And it gets a whole new life every time someone speaks about it, every time it is of interest to someone. And I think that's insanely cool, considering it might have been a throwaway castle. I just wanted a place to come, hunt, had no attachment to it whatsoever. Kind of like in Peter Pan, where, uh, you know, in order to keep Tinkerbell alive, you have to say that you believe in fairy. <laughs> Like, you have to say you believe in castles for them to still continue. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, like, I do believe in you. I do. Yes, you have to, like, bring back its spirit. You need to call it forth. It's an important work that we could do, Keely. You and I could Conjuring castles. We could conjure castles. We could just travel the UK and conjure castles. That sounds perfect. (laughs) 
I mean... Just going to a castle and clapping a lot. Yes! I love it. <laughs> wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up! Can you imagine? I, I don't think they'd like us there. I mean, does it matter? No. <laughs> we would just... I mean, we, we would make friends. You and I, we, it's fine. we'd make friends real fast. It's fine. Oh, I think that idea kind of plays into the like the concept of spolia anyway, right? Like, in an abstract sense, like the idea that everything's a palimpest and it just keeps getting covered over and it becomes something new, but everything that it was and will be is kind of still there. So you have the initial structure, which could have been built on something else or like made of a mishmash of other things, and then you have whatever it continued to become. And then even though it's not there, the remnants or the space that it was in, like what it will continue to be. I think that's pretty cool. Maybe that's a little bit too poetic. No, no, it's true. It's about like the layers of history, right? Mm -hmm. And it just, things continue on even when they cease physically being there or cease visibly physically being there, right? Which is why you have that amazing laser radar that allows you to like see everything. But even though it's not like visible, it's still, that doesn't mean it's not material in some way. It might not be physically material, but it is still existing it's still impacting people it's still connecting and intersecting and it it has what it used to be it has what it is now it has what it will continue to be and that's all that's all worth studying mm-hmm. conjuring castles <laughs> i really like I love that term. working title for thesis conjuring castles please do yeah you can you can <laughs> reference us <laughs> you're welcome Allie. just put t- trademarked <laughs> It's been awesome talking to you today about your studies and castles and yeah we're gonna be really excited to see your progression and as publications come out and as you take over the world of medieval research and structural research we will be there watching <laughs> take over the ground and what lies beneath Ooh, Ooh. i like that too <laughs> pioneering castle tron exactly exactly yeah oh, we yeah. want to see all the castles that you conjure it's gonna conjure the castle <laughs> But in the meantime, before your PhD comes out and you have other papers kind of like brewing, um, is there anything that you can tide us over with? Um, anything you'd like to promote, like your favorite castle or anything that you're watching that you like? Favorite castle at the moment, because it does change the more I see, is Tintagel, which is in Cornwall. And the legend for it is that's where King Arthur was born. And it's a load of hooey. <laughs> but... It's really cool to visit. It's sitting right on a cliff, and it's out in the middle of the water. English Heritage owns it. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant to go and see it. TV show, just because Canada is Letterkenny. Nice. Talk about it all day. All day. It's like when you... I don't know if any of the listeners have seen it, but you should look up clips online, and then you won't be able to stop talking in the voice that they use. It's... It's like... You're going to start yeah. calling people big shoots. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely and noticed I've done that. And then Chief. Chief. And Bud. Always Bud. Yeah. <laughs> Great day for hay. I've said that way too many times. Still don't know what it means, but said it. It's, I'm glad that that is the feather in your cap. The Canadian feather in your cap. That's our export. We got one Letter in, guys. <laughs> not bag milk. Not not anything else. Not ketchup chips. Not all dressed. Mm-mm. Letter Kenny. Mm-hmm. Ruling the world. <laughs> the true reason to come to Canada. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> so thank you so much again, Allie. We really appreciated having you here. And uh, yeah, as Kelly said, we're going to keep 
keep a weather eye on everything as it comes out for you. And uh, yeah, a special huge thank you to your friend Sam Clark, a No History employee, who is also here and has been very silent for this recording, um, for telling us about you and your studies and I think forcing you to come to my house. I mean, you look like you came of your own volition, but I don't know. I'm sure that Sam helped strong arm you here. It's really not hard to get me to come to Canada. <laughs> Super easy. Yes, because you came all the way here for this podcast exclusively. The only reason anybody ever comes is for this. Sam's just like <laughs> there. <laughs> Sam, do you want to say hi? Sure. Hey, Notice History listeners. <laughs> <laughs> like a pro. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week, we want to give a special thank you to Allie Norton and Sam Clark. Audio mixing was done by Jessica DiLorenzio. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.